0: 2 Samuel is quite some time after Saul's downfall as Israel's king. This chapter comes after David has been fully established in Jerusalem as king of Israel. He's been victorious over all his enemies, he's built up his palace, and now he rules over his people as the undisputed ruler of God's people. Because David is so secure and comfortable, he feels uneasy when looking at the tabernacle. Here's David, and he's sitting in a house of cedar, an indication of luxury. Meanwhile, God and his presence remain in a tent. It's a fancy one, but it's a tent. How is it fitting that a servant lives nicer than his master? So David's prophet, Nathan, he thinks this is a wonderful idea. Surely, God is with David in all of his success, so go and build. But that same night, God comes to Nathan the prophet and gives him and David a gentle rebuke. David's heart, it's in the right place, but God doesn't want him to build a temple. David's desire to build God's temple comes from a misunderstanding of God's presence. In ancient thought, gods and other spiritual beings, they were local. Deities belonged to a certain place, people, or city. Temples and idols, well, they were built to expand the influence of a god who worked through their images. There's some of this understanding in God's presence among his people. God had his glory enter into the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, and will later show it again in Solomon's temple. But God is not limited or held by his housing or any image. In verse 9, he tells David, I have been with you wherever you went. Yahweh is not just the God of Israel, but of all creation. And he isn't limited to whatever house David might be able to build him. God asks in verse 5, Would you build me a house to dwell in? God repeats this question in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? God is essentially telling David, That's cute that you would try and build a house for me. But what building could truly hold the presence of the living God? We call God's response to David a soft rebuke because of all the blessings that flow afterwards. David wants to build God a house, but instead, God is going to establish David's house. After David's death, he's promised that he will have his descendants ruling over the kingdom and established by God. This son is going to build up God's house, and he's going to be a son himself to God. He's going to be disciplined by God, but God's faithfulness to this promise is never going to end. David's lineage, it's going to rule forever as God's chosen dynasty. We see this promise being fulfilled in two ways throughout Scripture. When we see God making promises or prophetic statements about the future, there's typically going to be an immediate context and fulfillment, as well as a future context and fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment of this promise is seen in the life of Solomon, David's son. His reigns characterized by incredible peace and prosperity, and Solomon did indeed build a temple for God in Jerusalem, where his presence was manifested. But we should also look for a bigger and better fulfillment of this promise. There are some key words in this chapter that indicate to us that Solomon alone couldn't be the true fulfillment of these promises. For example, in verse 13, the throne of his kingdom will be established forever. Verse 16, your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. A quick tour of history shows that this simply isn't the case. We'll read 2 Kings 25 this Friday, when Israel is destroyed by Babylon and taken captive. And from then on, a descendant of David never sits on the throne. It was subsequently ruled by foreign nations who set up their puppet kings, such as Herod in the New Testament. And even in the brief century where Israel enjoyed independence prior to the times of Jesus, they weren't ruled by the Davidic dynasty, but by the Hasmonean dynasty. So what do we make of God's promise? Matthew 1.1 gives us a good answer. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. The son of Abraham. There are a number of New Testament passages that point to Jesus being this promised son of David from 2 Samuel chapter 7, and show us that all of these promises are finding their fulfillment in Jesus in ways that Solomon could never dream of. That God would raise up David's offspring. Well, that was seen as a foreshadowing of the resurrection. Jesus is the one who built God's house in his body and the church. It's where God's presence truly is to be found. Verse 14 says that God would be his father, which is constantly referenced in the Gospel of John. Jesus never needed discipline for any personal sin, but Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 tell us that Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. Solomon did fine with his temple, but Jesus did it better. Now David, he can't help but be awed by God's response to him. He comes before God and says something interesting in verse 19. All of what God has done for David and will do for David, is instruction for mankind. So in what ways does God's interaction with David instruct us? Well, David is twice characterized as a nobody in this chapter, by God in verse 8. I took you from the pasture, from following sheep. And again by David in verse 18. Who am I that you've brought me so far? The instruction is that God likes working through nobodies who have no power, and transforming them into something incredible. This is seen in the Exodus story, which David retells in verses 22 through 24. God takes a nation of slaves, and he makes them his chosen people forever. Now, he is choosing David to be the founder of an eternal dynasty, taking a nobody and making them something special. It's seen in the life of all of God's people. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 26, "...for consider your calling, brothers." Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So let the one who boasts, boast in God. That's our instruction. He has raised us up from nothing but sin and death, so that we could live with him forever and his son.